Ready to position for 2024? With an uncertain market environment on the horizon, positioning for 2024 has never been more critical or more challenging. On December 14th, Vetify is gathering top experts and thought leaders to unpack the market outlook. Registration for the Market Outlook Symposium is free. Register at etftrends.com slash webcasts slash market dash outlook dash symposium. ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. Some guests appearing on this program may also be financial sponsors of ETF Prime. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me will be Ben Johnson, Head of Client Solutions Asset Management at Morningstar, who is, of course, a leading provider of investment research and data, fund ratings, indices. They really do it all. And quite simply, Ben is one of the best in the business covering ETFs. He tracks his space as closely as anyone. Now, longtime listeners will know Ben has actually joined me for a number of years around this time. So this has become an uh, annual tradition where we like to look back on everything that's transpired in ETFs over the past year and then look ahead to the upcoming year. And so that's exactly what we'll be doing this week. And I can't wait for this. I'm just telling you, we have an absolute uh, boatload of topics to get into to include our usual uh, rapid fire questions where you're going to hear Ben's ETF story of the year, his ETF of the year, favorite new ETF launch, uh, ETF issuer of the year. Again, we're really going to try and uh, cover it all. So this should be fun. He'll join me in about 20 minutes. Now to start this week, I have on the line with me Laura Krigger, editor-in-chief at Vetify, and this will be absolutely perfect with uh, Ben being on the podcast because she's going to discuss some of the most interesting overlooked ETF stories of 2023. So I'm assuming Ben and I will cover all of the uh, biggest buzz stories. Laura is going to offer up some of the under-the-radar ETF stories that have caught her attention for uh, one reason or another. And I actually have her list. Uh, she sent this over to me beforehand. I feel like the overlooked aspect here works very well in terms of both media coverage and investor interest. I think you'll enjoy this. So let's chat with Laura now. 
Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. There's a couple of different ways to slice and dice these various ETFs. They can hold what are called total return swaps. Expect the unexpected. Laura, how have you uh, been? It's hard to believe we're already winding down 2023. I'm not sure where the uh, year went. <laughs> I feel like it just began, so it's a little uh, un, uh, a little surprising here. <laughs> All right. So as I mentioned at the top, you pro- uh, provided me with a list of several overlooked ETF stories this year. And uh, like I said, I can't wait to get your color on these because I would say at first blush, uh, these all make perfect sense. And I think you nailed the zeitgeist perfectly, right? These all fit 2023 very well. But uh, again, for whatever reason, these were all overlooked by uh, the media, investors, or uh, I think in most of these cases, both. And so let's get into these. And the first one I would say was probably the least surprising to me of what was on your list, but I'm still interested to get your take. And that was blockchain. ETFs. And I, I think I know where you're heading on these, but why did blockchain <laughs> ETFs stand out to you? Right. So what I think is really fascinating about blockchain ETFs, which, you know, took up all the oxygen in the room uh, last year and the year before and so on. But um, this is the year that blockchain ETFs were just standout performers. If you look at uh, the top five best performing ETFs in 2023, four out of the five of them hold blockchain and crypto companies. So I I ran this on Logically right before the call, and I'm just going to rattle off some numbers here. You have the Schwab Crypto Thematic ETF, that's ticker STCE, that's up 68% this year. There's the Amplify Transformational Data Sharing ETF, that's ticker BLOCK, that's up 69%. And then there's Queen of the Heap, the top performing fund of 2023, is the Bitwise Web 3 ETF, ticker BWEB, that's up 74% year to date. And so there's a couple of reasons for this, right? So one reason is blo- that blockchain is up is because uh, tech is up, right? If you look at the other ETFs in the top 10, um, it's all tech either industry slice funds like VanEx uh, SMH or broad sector plays like the iShares Tech Fund. Another reason is because blockchain, you know, it fell so much last year. So some rebound is going to happen. It's to be expected. But I think the sheer scale and velocity of this uh, rise for blockchain is it's definitely shocking. And I think it's flown under the radar because, you know, people aren't putting money into these ETFs. Um, some more numbers here. Uh, BWeb hasn't seen any creates since it launched last October. STCE has only seen about four million since inception, and Block has seen some recent flows, about eighteen million over the past month. But year to date, it's still seen net outflows of about forty million. So, I think this goes to show that you know investors are very wary of blockchain ETFs right now. The bloom is off the rose. I think a lot of the hot speculative money has moved on to the next hot speculative thing, which is AI, leaving mostly only the true believers uh, staying in. And then there's one last aspect here, and that's that the people who bought blockchain ETFs as a proxy for Bitcoin, now they can pretty much just hold their horses because a spot Bitcoin ETF is almost assuredly on its way. I think the latest estimates that I've seen put it around mid-January is the timing. So if and when that happens, um, 
blockchain, some blockchain related companies could stand to benefit, which is actually why I think you're seeing some folks move back into the largest and the most liquid uh, blockchain vehicles like Block, uh, you know, albeit in kind of a limited way, just as a sort of anticipatory move. I think this is a really interesting story to highlight. And by the way, I'm not taking your bait on the uh, spot Bitcoin ETF. We're staying away <laughs> from that topic. I threw it out there. I was hoping, but no, 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 no. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm staying away from that. But here, here's what's interesting is if you actually, well, well you went through uh, that list of ETFs. If you actually broaden out the description of what a blockchain ETF, and I think there, there's probably some debate to be had here in terms of what falls into that category. But I just pulled up the leaderboard of non-leveraged ETFs in terms of performance this year. And I'm seeing ETFs like the VanEck Digital Transformation uh, ETF, ticker DAPP, up 202%. The Valkyrie Bitcoin Miners ETF, uh, ticker WGMI, that's up 200%. Uh, the Invesco Illyrian Galaxy Crypto Economies ETF, ticker SATO. These all have great tickers, by the way. That's up like 193%. And I can keep going here. Global X has an ETF. There's another Bitwise ETF, uh, the, uh, the, the Crypto Industry Innovators ETF. And to your point, this is so fascinating to me because these ETFs are all over the ETF leaderboard this year. And there's hardly any flows into these things. And you just, yeah. you don't tend to see that in the ETF space. A lot of times you'll see that performance. Uh, I, I think Bloomberg's Eric Balchunas calls it like a shiny object moment. All of these ETFs are having that shiny object uh, moment this year, but investors aren't uh, biting. So I, I think this is a really good one. I think it has been overlooked. I think maybe on the media side, obviously we've heard more about crypto. But on the investor interest side, clearly these have been overlooked. I don't know if any other comments on that. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, it depends for what you're saying. Uh, you know, it depends on how you define blockchain, right? I'm using blockchain as a very broad uh, sort of descriptor to encompass everything from, um, you know, the, the users of blockchain to crypto miners to, uh, you know, basically taking the description that a lot of those uh, fund managers are using in their prospectuses to uh, stock select and, and so on. So um, I'm going to keep my eye on this. I think a lot may shift as the Bitcoin ETFs, uh, the spot Bitcoin ETFs, if and when they come to market. Um, I would not be surprised to see a little bit of knock-on effect uh, benefiting blockchain ETFs, but um, you know, really it could, it, it's all gonna depend on uh, how strong the demand is gonna be for, uh, for Bitcoin. Yeah, and again, I'm not taking the bait on the spot Bitcoin ETF, uh, but, we, but here's what I will say is that I do think and this is what you're you're touching on. I think one of the reasons we haven't seen the investor interest around these quote unquote blockchain ETFs is because of the assumption that a spot Bitcoin ETF will be debuting at some point, you know, perhaps even in the next uh, you know month or two. And right. so I I think I think really it's that simple. Um, okay, the next story on your list is AI driven ETFs, artificial intelligence, which. Look, we all know AI was one of the biggest stories in the markets overall this year, right, with chat, GBT and all that. Uh, but, but why did you pick AI-driven ETFs? So from one shiny object to another, right? Um, <laughs> so it's, it's wild to me that in a year where AI has taken up so much, so much oxygen in the room, AI has taken up so much mind share, 
the ETFs that use AI to pick stocks just really aren't catching fire with investors, right? So the AI-powered equity ETF, that's ticker AIEQ, which I believe is the oldest of the AI-driven ETFs, and which you can kind of think of as like a proxy for the space, it's only taken in 4 million in 2023. Um, Kraft's uh, AI-enhanced momentum fund, ticker AMOM, that's only taken in about 3 million. Wisdom Trees AI funds, they actually saw outflows, right? So the International Value Fund, ticker AIVI, is down uh, 5 million in flows. The US version has seen outflows of 44 million. And so you compare that to the ETFs that are tracking companies in the AI space, the ones that are uh, have that exposure to AI stocks, it's a much different story. Um, the funds that are marketed to, to um, track AI or even tangentially related to the space have done very well for themselves in 2023. I'm going to rattle off some more numbers here. Uh, Wisdom Tree's Artificial Intelligence and Innovation Fund, that's ticker WTAI, that has taken in about 166 million in flows. The Robo Global Artificial Intelligence Fund, that tracks a Vetify index actually, that's taken 72 million in. The Global X Robotics and Artificial Intelligence ETF, ticker BOTS, I think you just mentioned that a few minutes ago, that's up 60, uh, excuse me, 644 million. Roundhill's chat is up 60 million. I mean, just fund after fund after fund taking in a good chunk of change in 2023. So, you know, what's interesting is that. These AI tracking ETFs, they're outperforming the broader market, but so are the ones that the bots are running, right? AIEQ is up five percentage points on the broader market. AMOM uh, is beating the broad market by over 10 percentage points. So it seems like AI is working as a stock picker. But, you know, investors aren't ready to hand the keys to the car over to the robots yet. It's the same reason that self-driving cars haven't taken off, right? Uh, investors might be willing to hand their, um, their money over to an active manager who uses the robots to make stock selections. And honestly, that's what we've been doing for years with natural language processing algorithms and machine learning and other fancy ways of saying AI. But Investors want and need to believe that there's a human at the wheel, and that is so telling because as much as finance and investing is about numbers and charts and basis points and all of that, it's also about people and behavior and biases and emotion. So there's an interesting psychological hurdle to adoption for these AI-powered ETFs that, I don't know, maybe it's insurmountable in this generation of investors. Who knows? Well, that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, do you think that this space can have a future, AI-driven ETFs. I think clearly um, ETFs that invest in artificial intelligence and, and the associated companies, that's going to have a future in the thematic ETFs uh, space. But again, we're talking about AI-driven ETFs. Do you think there can be a real future here? I mean, I've read a lot about, say, active managers who are leveraging AI as part of their overall research process to select stocks. That makes a lot of sense to me, but that's a little bit different than just completely handing over, um, you know, the stock picking uh, decision-making process to AI. Yeah. And uh, I think what you just described, active managers, um, even index creators that are using AI as part of their research process, part of their, um, you know, thought process that goes into 
um, ideation, like that makes complete sense. And like I said, it's been going on for years. Um, if not AI, then other sorts of AI light tools have been employed pretty much since they were invented. Um, that being said, though, I think we're really going to need to wait uh, some time before we see something like an AI, a purely AI driven ETF take off in the market. Um, I honestly think you might need a new generation of investors, right? As I was hinting before, you need digital natives who are so comfortable and familiar with AI, who see it as uh, just not as Skynet, not as, you know, the the end all be all of, of, you know, not as a savior, not as Skynet, but as just a fact of life and just as ordinary and mundane as the internet is to us now. So uh, I think you're going to need to wait till those investors that are coming of age be kind of cure and, and, and get ready to start investing in scale. Then you might see AI driven ETFs take off. But for now, it's just going to be a party trick. Yeah. And I do think this is cliche. I People know I always talk about this on the podcast when we talk about any ETF category, but obviously a lot of this comes down to performance. And I, I think you mentioned AI EQ, and we may be looking, it, there may be a timing difference here. I mean, I'm showing that's up right now about 16% year to date. So yeah. actually trailing the S&P 500, but yeah. I, I just pulled up the chart. If I run AI EQ back to inception. And again, this is the AI powered equity ETF and compare it to the S&P 500. Listen to this. So the S&P 500 is up 97% over this time. AI EQ is up 46%. And that goes mm -hmm. back to, let's see, October 2017. So again, this is cliche, but it's going to come down to performance, right? If these things were knocking the cover off the ball and showing uh, some 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 ability to generate alpha that's going to get investor interest. I, I believe until that happens over a sustained period of time, I think it's going to be tough sledding. I think to what you were saying, it's just too early in the space overall for people to put a lot of uh, you know stock into what these are doing. Yeah, absolutely. All right. The next story you have is uh, commodity ETFs, and you specifically noted the Tucrium Sugar ETF, ticker symbol Kane, which uh, I, I think we both agree is a fantastic ticker symbol. Um, but my, my sense is that you feel like commodities in general have been overlooked. So, so give us some color on this one. I think commodities are always overlooked <laughs> unless they're exploding. Uh, unless it's, you know, tw I think 2007, people were giving commodities the, uh, the due that they deserved, but commodities are perennially under, under, um, served by our media coverage, uh, even though they're basically the, the foundations of our economy, right? Like food prices matter more than pretty much anything else. Energy prices matter, uh, so much. So, um, there's been so much going on po geopolitically this year. The war in the Middle East, uh, continued Russia-Ukraine war. There's an election cycle coming up. Yeah, I mean, yada, yada, yada. There's so much happening. It's almost like we forgot the world is still in the throes of some really, really, really unusual weather patterns. Places that don't get a lot of rain are being deluged, like the northeastern coast in the U.S. Places that normally do get lots of rain were drought-stricken. You know, here in New Orleans, I was telling you earlier this year, the Mississippi River was so low that salt water from the Gulf of Mexico is flowing upstream and compromising our drinking water. We thought we were going to have to ration for months. So all of that wacky weather has an impact on commodities prices. Food prices uh, have a very clear supply side component to them. 
The supplies for agricultural commodities across the board have been extremely challenged uh, this year. And sugarcane is the poster child. So, you know, all these wacky weather effects, they, they stem from an effect called the El Nino weather pattern. Uh, and depending on where you live, El Nino can make it either hotter and drier or wetter. And in the case of Brazil, which is the largest sugar producer in the world, you are seeing record rainfall. And record rainfall is actually pretty good for sugarcane. Sugarcane likes wet, uh, but when you get too much rain, that floods roads. It makes it harder to transport trucks and trains and so on. And so when you get the crop to the ships, um, it's a struggle to get there. Uh, It's a transporting problem. But then you get them to the, the container ships and ports elsewhere in the world are being impacted by low water levels and drought, like in New Orleans. Um, there are other countries in the world, like India and Thailand, that also grow a lot of sugarcane that are seeing these big droughts. And so the sugar isn't growing. India's incoming crop is projected to be about half the output it had from two years ago. So there's less supply on the market. And you know what that does to prices? They go up. So that's why the Tucrium Sugar Fund, cane, uh, which holds sugar futures, uh, it's up over 50% year to date. It's one of the top performers of the year, just shy of that top 10 uh, performing ETFs in the U.S., but barely anybody is buying, right? They've seen some creates and some redeems, a little bit of like institutional or, or, or hedger trader activity, but mostly the fund has landed flat with $8 million in outflows. That was really surprising to me. Yeah, that's exactly what I show up 53% year to date, 8 million in outflows. And I, I even just pulled up um, DBA, the Invesco DB Agriculture Fund, just to see what that looks like. Now, this one hasn't knocked the cover off the ball. It's up about 9%, but not bad, especially if you compare to some other uh, asset classes that are out there. 9% uh, year to date is not horrible. This thing has 340 million in outflows this year. And so I think clearly, this has been an overlooked category. So I, I guess if you had to summarize, I mean, do you think it just comes down to the fact that most investors and advisors, commodities just aren't on their their radar? And so even if you have good performance in the space, it's just not an area they're paying attention to? Do you think it's that simple? I think it, it has... Uh... I think there's an element of that with uh, maybe newer advisors um, and newer investors, right? But there are plenty of advisors with history who have been around for a couple of decades and have have been through, uh, for example, the 2007 um, run-up and bubble in commodities prices and then, uh, you know, the explosion. Excuse me, I think it was 2011. I'm sorry, getting the date wrong there. Um, but the the uh, price explosion in the commodities um, markets that were was right around the great uh, the time of the great financial crisis, and that kept on exploding for a few years afterwards. And they got burned there. And you know, maybe in the run up to that, they they were convinced uh, that they should have some exposure to commodities in their portfolio, maybe five to ten percent. And you know, it was a great diversifier, all of which is true, by the way. Um, but, you know, it, it diversified in the wrong direction <laughs> during that explosion. And so they got burned and they don't want to touch it again. So maybe a little bit of the same um, reticence that we're seeing in maybe some of the thematic areas right now, uh, like with blockchain, I guess, um, you know, is, is still there. There's still some wounds that are being licked, I guess, uh, from many, many, many years ago. So if you combine that with the fact that 
commodities just aren't on a lot of people's radars now. Um, you know, I, I think maybe that might be why we're not seeing uh, more people take advantage of these run-ups. All right. The last story that you flagged uh, is somewhat related here to the commodity ETF space. You flagged energy ETFs. And I would say out of the, the, the four stories we're covering here, this was probably the most surprising to me, just because if I look at say XLE, the Energy Select Sector Spider Fund, I'm showing that's down about a percent uh, year to date versus the S&P 500 up uh, about 21%. And so I'm, I'm interested to hear why you think this segment has been overlooked. Does it get into to drilling down further into different segments of the energy market or, or does it come back to flows? What are you seeing here? Well, it's interesting because we've seen, especially in the last few weeks, uh, a lot of headlines focusing on how terribly clean energy ETFs have performed this year, right? They're bleeding cash, billions in outflows, double digit negative performance, and so on. All true, all absolutely true. Um, clean energy ETFs in particular are tend to be growth-oriented companies. Growth-oriented companies tend to be hurt by higher interest rates. So, you know, it makes a, a lot of sense. What's interesting, though, is that traditional energy ETFs have held up better than clean energy, of course, at least comparatively. But they're not seeing much benefit in flows either, right? So so XLE, you mentioned XLE, that's about flat-ish for the year. Certainly not the bloodbath we've seen in climate funds like TAN, the solar ETF, which is down 34%. iClean, which is down 26%. Yet XLE, uh, you know, the time that I measured this, uh, 1.5 billion with a B in outflows, which is actually more than the outflows for both TAN and iClean combined. And it's not just XLE, right? Other big energy funds are seeing this too. Vanguard's energy fund, VDE, down 156 million uh, in outflows, even though it's about flattish for the year. Uh, IYE, about flattish as well. Uh, seen outflows of almost $1 billion. And here's what I think is happening. Um, it's, it's, a, it's that classic... Uh, local market versus global market, right? So look at iShares' global energy ETF. That's ticker IXC. It's up about eh, 4% on the year, not you know knocking the cover off the ball or anything, but it's taken in almost 1 billion in new net flows, uh, mostly in the past month or two. And the fact that it's global and the others are US focused, I think is the story because the US energy picture you know, the U.S. has got a lot of oversupply in the markets. We're, we've been generating a lot of oil. We're, we're very, I think we're even overtaking some OPEC countries and Saudi Arabia's considering flooding the market just to stay competitive. And it's all, you know, a lot of that. Um, but the, the, the long and the short of it is that it's keeping oil prices sort of muted and flat for the year. And there's also been a lot of M&A in the energy space, which I think Stacey Morris mentioned when she came on the show a few weeks ago, when M&A happens, that tends to benefit more of the oil services sector rather than the produces sector or a straight up futures fund like, you know, the energy, uh, you know, uh, USO or, or you know, those kind of funds. So I think the, the long and the short of it is that the global energy picture has more volatility to it. War could impact uh, oil supplies. El Nino could impact those oil supplies. So there's more potential for shocks, uh, which could positively impact oil prices. And so more opportunity for energy producers in the markets worldwide compared to, to the U.S. 
No, I think all of that is well said. And, and to your point, I did visit with um, your colleague, Stacey Morris. That was, I guess, a few weeks ago. And there are specific segments of this space that have performed well. You mentioned the service providers. The other area that is easy to highlight is the MLP space. Like I pull up yep. AMLP here, um, the Alarian MLP TF, which I, I know uh, Vetify provides the index on. That's up 26% year to date. So, uh, you know, clearly performing well. I guess if I had to characterize um, the surprise in this space, it would just be the lack of carryover from 2022 because energy yeah. as a sector was the best performing area of the market in a very difficult year for the market. So, you know, I would have thought that maybe there'd be some carryover in terms of investor interest on the flow side. Uh, but it just hasn't been there. You, you went through some of the flow numbers of the largest energy ETF. So I, I agree. This will be an interesting space to watch moving forward. I think it, you're right. It has been overlooked uh, in 2023. But Laura, excellent stuff as always. Uh, if I don't talk to you before then, I hope you and your family enjoy the holiday season. And I can't wait to reconnect in uh, 2024. Who knows what's going to be uh, <laughs> uh, on our, uh, our list of, uh, of topics to discuss. But thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me and a happy holiday season to you as well. That was Laura Krigger, Editor-in-Chief at Vetify. Calling all financial advisors. Get ready to boost your practice, portfolios, and network at the Exchange Conference, happening in sunny Miami from February 11th to the 14th, 2024. At Exchange, you'll gain valuable insights to grow your practice and sharpen your investment acumen with the top investment experts. But that's not all. By attending, you can earn over 10 CE credits and join a network that goes beyond business. Join a community that's dedicated to your success. Learn more and register now at exchangeetf.com. Looking for exposure to the aerospace and defense industry? The Gabelli Commercial Aerospace and Defense ETF, managed by Lieutenant Colonel Tony Bancroft, provides the tax efficiency and cost effectiveness of a traditional ETF with strong returns generated by active management. Invest in security. Soar with prosperity with GCAD. Visit gabelli.com forward slash funds forward slash ETFS forward slash GCAD to learn more. I'm now joined by one of my favorite experts in the ETF space, Ben Johnson, Head of Client Solutions Asset Management at Morningstar. Of course, Morningstar is a leading independent provider of investment research, fund ratings, tools, indices, you name it. And Ben is now on the line with me from Chicago. Ben, how have you been? So great to have you back on the podcast. So good to be back, Nate. I've I've been very well and excited to talk about all things 2023 and ETFs and all things as, as we look to 2024 and beyond. Yeah, I mentioned this at the uh, top, but for listeners who aren't aware, 
You have been coming on this podcast around this time each year for, I believe now, six straight years. I, I, I could be wrong on that, but if anything, it's been longer than that. And uh, this is always one of my favorite podcasts that I do. So uh, I'm assuming you're ready to run the uh, the year-end ETF gauntlet now? Definitely, Nate. Yeah, it's, All right. a, it's a holiday tradition. You know, chestnuts roasting on an open fire <laughs> and my, my not-so-hot takes roasting on, on ETF Prime. So looking forward to it. All right. So as usual, we are going to cover a, uh, a ton of ground here. And, and let's just start bigger picture by looking back at ETF flows in 2023, which uh, for the most part, um, I would say we're, we're pretty muted overall. But, you, you know, you look now, I mean, we are closing in on a half a trillion dollars in inflows, which isn't too uh, shabby. And, and so just at a high level, what stands out to you as you look at ETF flows this year? Yeah, it's interesting, Nate. I mean, you, you almost have to divide what we've seen in flows in, in 2023 into, you know, everything that happened before November and everything that happened in what was a, a November to remember. Um, so we saw $110 billion of, of net new inflows into ETFs, strongest month of inflows since March of 2021. Uh, leading up to November, investor appetite was pretty tepid uh, by virtually any measure. And I think a lot of that just has to do uh, you know, with the prevailing market environment and the fact that I think we lived through a long period where, you know, TINA was kind of one of the popular acronyms, right? There is no alternative to now when you look at, in particular, money market fund yields and money markets have seen hundreds of billions of dollars of inflows, uh, you know, in the neighborhood of 5% or so, uh, there are plenty of, of alternatives to, to risk assets. So it's been no surprise that uh, appetite for riskier assets wrapped up in ETFs has, has been somewhat muted this year. And where we have seen demand, it's, it's been in some of the least risky fare. Uh, you look at, you know, flows in particular into, you know, short and ultra short term, uh, you know, bond funds. We've seen one to three year T-bill funds be particularly popular this year. Um, you know, this isn't anything particularly sexy, but I, I think, speaks to, you know, what what investors want in, in a market environment like the one we're living through. I love the uh, the November to remember on ETF flows. I may have to use that. <laughs> um, All yours. On the uh, on the year to date flow. So I show about four hundred and sixty billion into ETFs overall. And to your point on the bond side, uh, about one hundred and eighty one billion into fixed income ETFs and a big chunk of that has been into U.S. Treasury ETFs, really all across the curve, but certainly um, more on that on that front end. And then on the long end, and if I just take a step back here, I, I think the flows to, to what you were touching on into bond ETFs are pretty intuitive overall. They make a lot of sense given where yields are at. But as I look at that long end, I am still amazed at the flows into TLT in particular, the uh, iShares 20-plus year Treasury bond ETF. I show about $22, 23000000000 into that ETF. And again, to your point, there is now income and fixed income. We knew that coming into the year. And so maybe not a huge surprise to see investors look uh, at this space. But were you surprised at all by TLT in particular? And again, I don't want to get too far into the weeds on ETF-specific flows, but I do think TLT was one of the biggest stories this year. What, what did you make of that? Well, I mean, definitely. And if, if you look at, you know, nearly $23 billion, uh worth of flows year to date, TLT has, has been an interesting story because it looks, 
you know, a bit like investors have been sticking their hand in, into the fire. It's not been a, a, a performance story as, as people have gone out on the long end of the curve. And I think it's just a classic e- example of you trying to maybe read in too much into what we're seeing in ETF flows or trying to apply kind of, you know, old sort of school thought around flows logic to ETFs where oftentimes the logic does not apply. And what I mean there is when you look at flows into traditional long-only mutual funds, you can say with a high degree of confidence that that's indicative of people, you know, expressing confidence in the future prospects of that particular category, be it long bonds, be it U.S. stocks, emerging markets, you name it. But ETFs are just so much more dynamic of vehicle by virtue of the fact that they're traded on exchange. You can go long, you can go short, there's options, yada, yada, yada. You've got a much broader, deeper, richer, more diverse investor base instead of use cases with ETFs that make it exceedingly difficult to apply that same old logic to what we see in, in ETF flows. So, you know, there's an example, uh, you know, of, you know, a significant portion of, of flows into TLT actually being a derivative of flows into the triple levered version of the same product from uh, you know, direction, uh, TMS. Um, so, you know, it's just, it's, it's important to, you know, really do your, your detective work. And I'd like an ETF flows to, you know, a broken game of Clue. Like, we know candlestick with ETFs, TLT. <laughs> what we don't know is who bludgeoned who with the candlestick and then what dark corner of the clue mansion, because we don't have direct look-through to individual shareholder record accounts the way we do with mutual funds. So it's 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 always going to be a lot of detective work. No, that's a really good point, and I, I think you're right. That's something that sometimes gets lost in the, in the headlines here, because it's easy to look at TLT and go, okay, it's third in ETF flows overall this year, but it's down 4%. Like, this doesn't make sense, but there's always more going on underneath the surface than, than what you may think. And uh, in ETF land, you're right, it can be a little bit difficult to parse through some of those flows and, and what's driving them. But I still think it's it's interesting. I think clearly there has been investor interest here. And I, I'm not comparing these, by the way, to uh, to the blockchain ETFs, but Vetify's Laura Kruger and I were discussing that particular space earlier. And it's just interesting because if you look at the ETF leaderboard performance-wise, blockchain ETFs are all over those, the, 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 the you know, the top 10 but they're not getting any inflows. And then you look at an ETF like TLT, down 4%, but third on the leaderboard in terms of flows. It's just uh, interesting. Again, I realize two completely different uh, segments of yeah. the market. Um, okay, as you you know parse through uh, some of the other flow stories this year, I think one that clearly sticks out is uh, the money going into actively managed ETFs. And I, I'm really curious to hear your take on this because my sense is, and, and I could be wrong, you tell me, but my sense is that you're more of a uh, an index fund type guy. And so I would love to hear what you made of the buzz around this quote unquote rise of active ETFs. Yeah, so I mean, I, I, I think no different than trying to divine what's going on with respect to flows to TLT. There's just so much nuance to unpack here. Um, you know, firstly, I, I think we have to level on definition and in, in Per our own Morningstar's definition, you know, we categorize anything that doesn't specifically to set out to track an index is, is being active. So, you know, active as a category includes a whole host of things that uh, range from you know, traditional notions of discretionary active management. So ETFs offered by the likes of Fidelity and Capital Group and T. Rowe Price. 
uh, to systematic active. So dimensional funds, Avantis uh, are some of the you know, foremost players in that space. You know, we see newer categories, options-based strategies like JEPI, uh, things that look kind of like structured products from Innovator and First Trust and others, all the way to exposure vehicles like JAAA, uh, which offers exposure to AAA-rated CLOs. So you know, active as a category contains multitudes. And what we've seen in reality, despite the fact that the category now has uh, just over 6% market share, that it's accounted for nearly a quarter of overall flows into ETFs, is that no different than the ETF market at large. We've seen this be a case of winners taking most. And most of the money going into this category isn't piling into strategies that most investors would typify as, as traditionally active. So picking individual stocks, individual bonds, sectors, what have you. Uh, it's going into, on the one hand, systematic active strategies. So at the very top, uh, by a pretty wide margin of the active ETF leaderboard is dimensional fund advisors. Um, now, you know, they deserve an asterisk or a cross or whatnot next to their name, uh, you know, no different than you know, the Barry Bonds and Sammy Sosa's and Mark McGuire's of, uh, you know, yesteryear baseball slugging to the extent that they've had some performance-enhancing conversions that it's helped them get a leg up over their competitors. But this is uh, a, an instance where you know, you're not seeing sort of traditional active um, lead the way. You're seeing systematic strategies get most of the money. The one common theme I would say that we see driving success across the board, whether you're DFA, Avantis, uh, or indeed even Capital Group, is the rise of model portfolios. And a lot of those flows, a lot of that success is really piggybacked on the growth of these templates for portfolio construction that are increasingly popular with advisors, especially new advisors who are, you know, never going to set out to, you know, try to be the next, you know, Peter Lynch. Um, you know, and are happy to you know, outsource portfolio construction to a third party. And increasingly, those third parties are either, you know, their office of the CIO or, or their asset managers. So that's, uh, I, I think, been an interesting area uh, of growth, not just for active, um, but for ETFs writ large, and will continue to drive uh, a lot of flows in the future. Okay, so I think several things to unpack here. Um, I, I guess first, how much do you think cost? has played a factor in this uh, rise of systematic active ETFs. Like I, I just pulled up, you mentioned Avant, uh, I'm sorry, Avantis and Dimensional. And if you look at the average expense ratio, actually for both of those issuers, it's 24 basis points. And so to your point, if, if these strategies maybe look a little more uh, index-like than, than what people are used to seeing, and you can, but you can still get them for 24 basis points, I mean, I think clearly that's something that uh, resonates with investors. Do you think cost has been a big driver behind this? Uh, I think cost is, is you know, a, a, a gravity-like force, you know, irrespective of where you are in, in the asset and wealth management industry. What I would say is that with respect to some of these success stories in actively managed ETFs, I, I would argue it's not anything new with respect to how they've priced their asset management products historically, you know, DFA, Capital Group, Avantis, you know, relative newcomer, but with DFA DNA, uh, you know, being very cost conscious has, has been part of sort of their worldview, their approach to 
you know, serving clients and, and pricing their products from the very get-go. So what is net new, Nate, I would argue really is, is the wrapper, right? It's, it's the ETF wrapper. Um, you know, and I think, you know, what is, you know, particularly interesting is if you just zoom out a bit and look at DFA's flows more holistically across both ETFs and mutual funds dating back to the time of their first mutual fund to ETF conversions, uh, those two flows, the ETF flows and the mutual fund flows, have, have roughly offset one another. So in many cases, what you're seeing is, is the real driver here is just you know, the availability of known strategies um, in a wrapper that's more compatible with the way that advisors are building portfolios these days. Okay, so that's a really interesting point, because as I think about the future growth of systematic active ETFs like Dimensional and Avanis, and we can toss in options-based ETFs like like Jeppy, um, because of what you just described with money coming out of mutual funds and, and finding its way into ETFs. And I, I think you're right. I think someone like Dimensional is the perfect example here where they now have over, what, $100 billion in ETF assets, but they have had those those outflows on the mutual fund side. And so I, I guess my question is, I mean, do you expect this growth to continue? Is, is it that simple that we'll see money continue to leave mutual funds? Uh, ETFs will keep vacuuming up those those assets, and it's really just more of what we've witnessed over the past 10 to 15 years, it just so happens that now that these strategies are offered in ETF wrappers going into these systematic active ETFs. I mean, I mean is that is that the big picture? Is, it, is that the simple take here? Yeah, I, I think that's part of it, Nate. But I, I, I think if you look at ETFs more generally, you know, it, it, it's not just mutual funds milkshake that ETFs have put their straw in, right? Like that, that sucking sound is is loudest when you you look at mutual funds, but ETFs is a category of taking share from everything from individual securities to you know, derivative instruments to you name it. So I, I think the growth is going to continue to be more widespread. And I, I think a perfect you know example of that in the active ETF category is uh, you know some of those exposure vehicles like I described with with J AAA, so Janice Henderson's AAA CLO ETF, right? So you're repackaging, um, you know, a relatively illiquid uh, you know, segment of, of the market into something that trades on exchange like a stock, which, you know, speaks to just the secular trend we've seen in bond ETFs writ large. And indeed, you know, if you zoom out and look at the bond ETF category more sort of holistically, you know, organic growth in that space, you know, $184 billion in net new flows year to date, translates into 14.3% organic growth. I, I think we're still in the early stages of the secular growth story in uh, fixed income ETFs, because what they're doing is, is what people have wanted to do to fixed income markets to transform liquidity in those markets now for decades on end. And lo and behold, as it's so often the case, you know, oftentimes the, the best answer is the simplest, and oftentimes it's right under your nose, which is you know, repackage these things into something that trades like a stock that's every bit as liquid as its ticker is going to be on the NICE or the NASDAQ or SIBO or what have you. Um, so, you know, I, I think most of, of the growth is going to continue to come from just kind of repackaging, rewrapping. Um, but, you know, that's going to happen in, in different directions as well. And, you know, we're on the precipice now of in the retirement space, for example, uh, target date mutual fund assets actually being eclipsed by target date CIT assets. Um, and long before we saw mutual funds 
converting to ETFs, we saw mutual fund assets converting to CAITs in the retirement space. So the the bigger picture here is just that you know, money is going to the wrapper that is most suitable, most efficient, and most investor-friendly, depending on the channel, depending on the circumstance in question. And, and ETFs have been, you know, the the star of the show in in this saga that I, I refer to as life after mutual funds, which sounds like a very lame daytime soap opera, but it's <laughs> actually the reality of where every net new dollars is going in the asset wealth management industry. The other thing that you had mentioned earlier, which caught my attention, uh, were flows being driven by model portfolio usage. And I, I'd love to have you just expand on that a little bit. Uh, I talk to a lot of advisors, and I feel like there's a uh, a split or a bit of a debate here. You have one camp of advisors who go, model portfolios are fantastic. I'm not a CIO. I can outsource the investment management piece. That frees up my time to focus on other, you know, quote unquote, value added activities, financial planning, so on and so forth. And then the other camp of advisors uh, I hear from says, hey, look, this is why the uh, end client is paying me to you know, put together portfolios and have ownership over those portfolios and, and conduct the due diligence. And I'm just curious, I, I guess, A, your take on that, and then B, um, if you could talk more about why you think model portfolios could be a catalyst for future ETF growth. Yeah, I, I forget where I first heard it, Nate, and it applies to, I think, more categories than, than advisors. But someone once said to me, when you've met one advisor, you've met one advisor. Um, and, and, you know, fewer true word, truer words have ever been spoken because every advisor has, has a different sort of origin story, a different worldview, um, you know, which is exactly as it should be because every client is different. And, and ultimately, you know, I think so much of the advice business is, is just driven by that human relationship in, in a matching exercise. Um, so, you know, what we see is, is when we move from kind of, you know, the individual you know, advisor trees, if you will, to looking at the whole of the advisor forest is that all of those data points coalesce and, and what you begin to divine are real trends. And those real trends point to model portfolios, especially at the margin, um, especially among newer advisors as being the direction of travel. Um, and that's because portfolio management is, is very difficult and not necessarily an area where most advisors on average are going to add a ton of value for their clients. Uh, and when you look at it, especially across large wealth platforms, they're, they're trying to build for scale and really focus their advisors on the things that they do best uh, with respect to you know, fostering existing relationships, establishing new ones, uh, you know, focusing on all the myriad areas outside of the portfolio where they can really move the needle for their clients. And the way to do that and do that at scale is to provide these templates for portfolio construction, right? Like, all a model portfolio is really at the end of the day is it, it's kind of a paint by numbers exercise. Um, you know, here is your, you know, sort of black and white outline of a cardinal. Um, you know, one corresponds to the color red, two color corresponds to the color orange. You know, please use these colors as prescribed in, in color within the lines. Um, and what will result is a portfolio that will be suitable to, you know, the needs of your specific client. So I think that, you know, need for scale, that need for consistency, um, you know, the fact that at least historically, you know, some advisors have probably subtracted value for their clients by, um, you know, doing things that, you know, don't involve coloring inside the lines in particular, 
uh, you know, at the enterprise level, this is also a means of, you know, trying to control for, for enterprise risk if you're a large wealth platform. So there's just so many reasons why we see, you know, this trend um, not just taking shape, because I would argue it began to take shape years and years ago when mutual fund wrap programs first became a thing. But it's really begun to accelerate and I, I think fan out beyond just the large wires and, and increasingly take shape, you know, within the RIA space, especially as we see more and more uh, RIA roll-ups, um, you know, taking place uh, across the industry. We'll move on here, but I think just to put a bow on this entire discussion around where we're currently at with, with ETFs, we talked about that nearly $500 billion coming into the wrapper this year, and then as we think about potential growth drivers moving forward. So I think you've done a good job here. You've touched on, obviously, the rise of, of fixed income ETFs. We've talked about systematic uh, active uh, model portfolios. I thought you did a good job of walking through the life after mutual funds. And, and all of these things are somewhat interrelated, but these flows coming out of mutual funds going into ETFs. Just as you look forward, is there anything else that you would flag that could further drive flows in the ETF space? Any other key catalysts? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are other things that you have to take into account. So at a more macro level, you know, part of the the sort of, you know, sold slew of factors that are, are driving money out of mutual funds, uh, I think also has to do with the demographic of, of the mutual fund investor base. So you've got, uh, you know, baby boomers, you know, retirees now um, that have used mutual funds in many cases very successfully to build their nest egg, and they're moving from accumulation to decumulation. So they're starting to, uh, you know, move from putting more dollars on their, their money pile to taking dollars off that so naturally, you're going to see outflows there. You're going to see outflows driven by things like, you know, required minimum distributions for people who are even further along in their journey still. Um, and in some cases, that means money's coming out of the system. And in other cases, that's actually been uh, an area that's driven growth uh, for ETFs. Uh, these moments where you take an RMD out of a tax-deferred vehicle like an IRA, and all of a sudden that's taxable money in, in ETFs as being the you know, more tax-efficient wrapper have, have been a beneficiary. You saw that in moments like last year, uh, where there are these opportunistic moments to put money in motion, where there are drawdowns, you're out from under a, a tax overhang, you're less worried about the tax implications of liquidating a legacy position, um, and you can move over in, into ETFs. So there's, I think, always a, a host of different factors that are going to be in play, but the, the direction is clear, and even if you look now, just all the way back to the launch of SPY in 1993, uh, and look at cumulative flows just divvied up by wrapper, ETFs and mutual funds. We're now a few years into the ETF era. And, and when I say that, I mean the moment where cumulative flows since SPY launched in 1993 into ETFs have surpassed cumulative flows into mutual funds. Huh, that's a great stat. I love that. Um, okay, to, to make sure we uh, we get to our, our rapid fire questions here, let me ask you just very briefly about two other topics uh, on the ETF flow side, and then we'll get into those rapid fire questions. Um, look, and this could be a, an entire podcast, ESG ETFs. I'm, I'm really curious to hear where your head's at on these right now, because if, if you look at flows, the ETF with the single largest outflow this year is ESGU, over $9 billion dollars. And I show flows into ESG ETFs overall have been negative. There's different ways to classify them, but I show overall they're net negative. Uh, we're also seeing an uptick in ESG ETF closures. 
very simply, do you see a future for this category or do you think it's dying? Well, I think there, there's absolutely a future for this category, Nate, but I, I think its future uh, you know, looks more like it's, you know, kind of pre-2018, 2019 past than it does through the moment we lived through. And if you look at just flows into ESG funds writ large, inclusive of ETFs and mutual funds, um, on a trailing 12-month basis, we, we lived through a two-year period where it looked like a, a literal roller coaster ride. Um, so from a very high high to, you know, very quickly a very low low, and we've been trending negative on a trailing 12-month basis through 2023. And I think a, a lot of that had to do with just sort of normal fashion cycles, if, if you will, that we live through within the asset management industry, but really any industry at large, right? I, I think to, you know, examples under my own roof, right? My eldest daughter, um, you know, I come down in the morning and she's wearing a Nirvana t-shirt and Doc Martens boots, and I'm wondering what year it is. Um, so <laughs> there, I think inevitably are, are these fashion cycles that we live through. ESG is you know, taken on any number of different forms, any number of different names over the years. I think it's a category that will continue to evolve. But what we've seen is that there's just not that widespread appetite to invest in this manner that we thought. It's, it's there. Uh, it's just not as big as many had suspected. And this is all, of course, setting aside the fact that it has become uh, a political football lightning rod, however you want to typify it. Um, the fact that, um, you know, a lot of the products that have come out have, have been, you know, just barely like tinted green and, and not truly ESG. Um, there's, there's so many different things that you can unpack there. But it, I think the category continues to, to be with us for as long as we're going to be around and, and beyond. I, I just think it's going to be a, a case of, you know, perpetual evolution. And, you know, given, I think, in particular, how deeply personal it is, I, I continue to think that, you know, the, the best potential, the biggest potential is to really localize it, personalize it at an individual level through something like direct indexing in the future. Yeah. And, you know, I completely agree with that. I've been pounding the table on that for years that I think that's actually one of the best use cases for direct indexing if we move outside of uh, just managing taxes for higher net worth investors. But two other things I'll mention. Number one, uh, I you're not going to believe this. My daughter left for school today with a Nirvana shirt on. <laughs> number one. And number two, you know, on the ESG side, I do think you, you mentioned it being a political uh, lightning rod. I think that's been the biggest issue here in that I'll speak from an advisor's perspective. I don't think advisors want to mix politics with portfolios. It just doesn't work out well. They have to assume as they look at their client base that you have 50 percent on one side of the aisle and 50 percent on the other. And there's a full spectrum there of where they, they land. And so I think you have to be very careful um, with with the perception of, of some of these products. And I think that's been one of the biggest headwinds to the space. Um, OK, just real quick. The other flow story that stuck out to me. Uh, ben was thematic ETFs, and I would say more specifically ARK Invest, because if you look at ARK this year, it's really interesting. So their ETFs have performed pretty darn well across the board. But you, you look, I, I pulled this up this morning, they still have about $1.3 billion in outflows. Uh, any, any quick thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a case of once bitten, twice shy. Um, and if you just look at the category writ large, uh, you know, my uh, colleagues, uh, Kenneth Lamont and Matthias Matola, uh, just a few weeks ago, published a, an analysis 
um, looking at the difference between time-weighted and, and cash flow-weighted returns. So trying to size the like classic behavior gap in this category. And what you see is that investors on average only actually are able to capture about a third of the returns that thematic funds, active passive ETF mutual fund globally are, are able to produce. So it's, it's a category that irrespective of how well these funds have performed, uh, investors have really struggled to use them well. Um, so it's an area that it, if there's a solution for that, I, I think it's, you know, how do we put these in context? How do we put them in model portfolios? And indeed, there's a lot of efforts. There's a lot of portfolios that do exactly that. To, to try to, you know, uh, improve the odds that investors will, you know, behave well and, and be able to sit tight through the inevitable ups and downs that you're going to experience, uh, you know, with ARKK and, and other thematic funds. I think that is spot on. You, you know, it makes me think of your uh, thematic ETF framework, which I, I, I think you know I love. I've talked about this numerous times on the podcast where you explain how, uh, thematic ETFs are essentially trifecta bets, right? That you have to pick a winning theme. You have to pick an ETF that actually captures that theme. Uh, you have to get the timing right. So so you basically have to be right on three things to win. And uh, if you have a DraftKings account like I now do, then you know that's not, <laughs> not exactly easy to do. Not easy. Yeah. And so I, I, I do wonder if more investors are realizing that. And you make a good point that I wonder if, if, what will help drive growth in this space moving forward uh, are, is the model portfolio uptake. Because I do think thematic ETFs can play a role behaviorally uh, in a portfolio. I'm not going to get down that rabbit hole today, but I, I do think for certain investors having that cocktail party talking point and the, at least the potential for upside or being invested in a space that they're passionate around, that can help them. Let's say you have a 5% allocation to a thematic ETF that covers one of those areas. That can help them stay invested on the other 95% low-cost, globally diversified portfolio. And so I do think there's a role for thematic ETFs, but you're right. If you look at just the performance track record here and, and more specifically how investors have performed uh, with these ETFs, it, it hasn't been great. Um, okay. Before we uh, look ahead of 2024, let's do our usual rapid fire here. So I'm going to tee up the question, Ben. You offer a quick response. If you want to offer a little color, that, that's fine. But think like 30 to 60 seconds on on each of these. Yeah. All right. Your ETF story of the year. Yeah. So my ETF story of the year, I, I think, will probably only be proven out uh, in, in hindsight. So next year, the year following or a year further out, which is you know, these filings we've seen for ETFs is, is a share class. Um, from you know dimensional fidelity and in, in, in others, uh, yeah, I think we see a lot of people talk about mutual fund to ETF conversions. I think the single most efficient means of converting mutual fund assets to ETF assets is by appending an ETF share class to an existing mutual fund. And if you need proof, you know, look no further than Vanguard that's been doing this now for for years. Um, so you know the SEC has no real sort of end date on this. Um, it's sitting on their desks. I would expect next year we'll see more filings for ETF as a share class to kind of force the SEC's hand uh, to say something about their their thoughts on it. But if you look at the contents of the dimensional and the fidelity filings, they were very thorough, very thoughtful, picked apart bit by bit all of the myriad reasons that ETF as a share class was set aside when the ETF rule uh, took shape. Um, you know, I, I think this could be, you know, a real 
game changer with respect to the the future growth trajectory of of the ETF wrapper at large. Yeah, I think that's a good one. And uh, you're right. I think it's funny because we talked about all of the potential uh, drivers of of future ETF growth earlier. We didn't touch on this one. And I I think this could be another huge catalyst when you think about allowing traditional fund companies who are entrenched in the retirement plan space, they have large amount of mutual fund assets and 401ks and such, allow them to keep that, which is a cash cow for them, but still pursue the ETF market much more cleanly. Uh, you, you can see how that, just the upside there, it's a win-win for, for those types of companies. Um, all right, your ETF of the year, is in a single ETF that you would highlight? Yeah, I mean, at the risk of, of being kind of you know, too uh, conformist and, and obvious. I, I, I think Jeppy uh, is is the winner this year. You know, another our monster year from this fund. Uh, you know, nearly 13 billion in inflows. That's actually more than Spy, believe it or not, as as of the end of day on December 1st. And I, I think what's more interesting is that that's come despite the fact that it's underperformed the market year to date. Uh, the fact that the rate environment has left investors with you know, far more choices for, for income than they had last year. And I think it's also interesting just to the extent that it's created, uh, you know, new competition uh, in a way that's reminiscent of the boom we saw in currency hedged ETFs that Wisdom Tree pioneered with DXJ and HEDJ uh, all those years back. You know, in this category, we've seen competition now emerge from BlackRock, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, and, and others. But you know, what I would argue here is that unlike the case of currency-hedged ETFs, uh, which saw kind of a, a boom-bust cycle of, of sorts, they're still very much around, of course. Uh, my guess is that this category is, is going to be a, more of a secular demand story, have a bit more staying power, and, and be somewhat less cyclical than what we've seen uh, with FX-hedged ETFs. I think Jeppy's a good one, if for no other reason to what you were touching on. That ETF is up 8% year-to-date versus 21% on the S&P 500, but it's taken in over uh, – what what is it here? Let me pull this up. Yeah, $13 billion, uh yeah. In, in flows. So, yeah, that's a, that's a good one. Okay, your favorite new ETF launch. Yeah, so favorite new ETF would have to be the Schwab High Yield Bond ETF, so SCYB. Um, you know, this is a late comer to a space that has you know, already some very well-established, deeply entrenched uh, competition. Um, but you know, I would argue that this is a, a, an ETF that's emblematic of all that's good about the ETF category, which is really competition. The competition to deliver it as a, a low a cost, as tax efficiently, uh, as widely available, as liquid as possible, exposure to segments of the market, to investors. And SCYB, you priced at three basis points, is, is really kind of bananas. I mean, you talk to people who have been around high-yield bond markets for decades now, and you know, if 10 years ago you were to say to them, you know what, you can trade high-yield beta on the NICE, uh, you know, on an equity ticker, and we're going to charge you three bips for that, they they would chase you out of the room. They would say you were absolutely crazy. So for so many reasons, I, I think SCYB is is really um, you know just a quintessential example uh, of how 
the ETF categories has really pushed the envelope and, and benefited investors around the world. I like that. And I agree with you. It's mind boggling that you can get high yield bond exposure now for three basis points. I, I, I still can't believe it as long as I've been in the ETF space. The other thing, I believe if you look at Schwab's bond ETF lineup, aren't they all three basis points or somewhere close to that? Uh, it, it's amazing. I mean, their fixed income lineup overall is priced extremely competitively. Um, all right, very quickly, your favorite new ETF ticker. Yeah, so favorite new ETF ticker. It was a tough choice this year, but I, I picked B, B-E-E-Z. So that's huh. uh, Liz Simmy's Honey Tree U.S. Equity ETF. Yeah. Uh, there's a there's a fine tradition of, of critters around the ETF space, you know, spiders, vipers, um, you know, moo came before cows. So we had a, a pair of different buzz ETFs before we had bees. So I think there's something poetic uh, about this ticker as, as well. So bees, bees gets my nod for favorite new ETF ticker. That's a good one. I actually had uh, Liz Simi on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. So she's with Honey Tree Investment Management. It's a Honey Tree U.S. equity ETF. So I thought bees is absolutely perfect there. That's a that's a good one to flag. All right. Lastly, your ETF issuer of the year. Yeah, so for ETF issuer of the year, I've, I've got to give the nod to the the team at Avantis, um, and for a variety of reasons. You know, I, I think you hear, you know, in a market now that's you know, thirty plus years old, um, that's very competitive, that's very saturated. They're they're really proof that there is the potential for success, and, and their range now is up above thirty billion dollars in in assets under management and. You know, that formula for success is, is really a, a thoughtful, thorough, proven investment strategy at its core, applied consistently across a lot of different markets, delivered in an efficient wrapper, um, one that was built, again, with model portfolios in mind, uh, and one that was priced very competitively from the get-go. So I, I don't think there's, you know, any secret, really, um, you know, any more magic formula that, that that's new uh, as we discussed before, Nate, I, I think the, the new bit of this, um, you know, is, is just delivery, right? It's, it's, hey, wrap this in an ETF wrapper because that's, you know, where the demand is. That's the, the wrapper that in many cases, more cases every day, um, is the wrapper of, of choice for your current and prospective investors. Yeah, Avanis is perfect, right? Because it does embody everything we discussed earlier with this rise of uh, systematic active ETF. So I think that's a good one. All right, Ben, it's your lucky day because we're running short on time. And I know you're not big into uh, predictions uh, <laughs> because I know every year we do the same song and dance where I try to pin you down for a, a prediction for the upcoming year. And, you know, we, we dance around. You tell me how you don't like to make predictions, but uh, we have a minute left. So I'm going to try to get at least one prediction from you, just something that you could actually be wrong on yes. <laughs> next year. Give, give me one prediction for 2024. Nate, this, this is my, my early Christmas present to you because it's specific to Bitcoin ETFs. <laughs> so my, my prediction is that if Bitcoin ETFs get the go ahead next year, get the nod from the SEC and we see either a shotgun start or, or something vaguely similar to that. Yeah, I, I think adoption is ultimately going to fall short of, of many folks' expectations. And I've seen some figures published by, by Gemini and, and others that try to back into, you know, year one flows based on, on the total addressable market. Um, you know, I generally think that most people that want exposure to Bitcoin have already generally figured it out. 
I, I think the barriers to adoption of an ETF are, are going to be higher than many suspect. That's not to say that, you know, it's not a, a solution for some. I, I just think that, uh, you know, it, it's going to be probably a dis- disappointment relative to expectations. Um, not probably nearly as disappointing as what we've seen with Ethereum futures ETFs, but, uh, you know, nonetheless, probably not. Uh, you know, in the the range of I forget what the Gemini figure was, but it was billions upon billions of of year one flows. I like that. That's a good one. Maybe uh, out on uh, Twitter or X, we can make a formal bet on where assets are going to land. Um, I guess the only comment that I would have on that is twofold. Number one, I do think that spot Bitcoin ETFs will launch or uh, break every uh, ETF launch record that we've seen if you look at them cumulatively, but. To your point, I, I've talked a lot about how if you can own a spot Bitcoin ETF in your Schwab account, that's not a, it's not a huge leap, at least in my mind, to, to get to the point where you can actually own Bitcoin direct in your Schwab account. And once that happens and, and that, you know, that's already being built, like I think about Fidelity Digital Assets, yeah. right? Once that happens, there's no need for a spot Bitcoin ETF. And so I could see a scenario where we have a lot of demand early on, and then actually that demand wanes as it becomes easier to own Bitcoin. But we'll see. Uh, I I think that's a good prediction. And again, we'll have to come up with an asset threshold uh, for for a wager. But Ben, like I said, I always enjoy this every year. I really appreciate you taking the time. I hope you and your family enjoy the uh, holiday season. Thank you for joining me. Likewise, Nate. Uh, happy holidays to the, the Geraci family, and I love that we're keeping this tradition alive. Thank you. That was Ben Johnson, Head of Client Solutions, Asset Management at Morningstar. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, T-Rex ETFs. If you would like to learn more about T-Rex ETFs, you can visit recshares.com slash T-Rex. Next week, I'll be joined by Vetify's Dave Nottig. Uh, it'll likely just be the two of us for the entire podcast. And I'm actually uh, not even quite sure what we're doing yet, but I am kicking around several very interesting ideas. I would say either way, you're definitely not going to want to miss that. Until then, have a great week, everyone.